You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have come, O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would now teach us your wisdom, uh, that you would cause us to not just believe uh, these truths intellectually, that we have just uh, heard read and considered all that we have sung today, but that we might believe uh, in our heart and with our whole soul, our whole mind. Uh, Father, make us yours. Help us to trust you more. For grace we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, I'd love to after the service. We are taking a few weeks break Uh, from, we just finished the book of Acts, and we're going to start the book of Proverbs next week, which I couldn't be more excited about. Uh, But uh, we are taking a few weeks to just think through a few psalms, uh, as we typically do. So we are in Psalm 27 this evening. Uh, These are certainly times of heightened fear. Like, if you just, like, walk down the streets or uh, just open any of your social media feeds, you can just inhale the fear. There is fear of COVID, there is fear of the government, there is fear of left-wing extremists, there, are, there is fear of right-wing extremists, there is fear of the Supreme Court in this direction and fear of the Supreme Court in this direction, there is fear of crime, there is fear of terrorism, and on and on and on we could go. Fear motivates so much of what we think about during our week, so much about what we talk about so much of what we are passionate about. One World War II historian famously suggested that most wars are not started because of aggression, but because of fear. Well, threats are real, and there is actually much in the world to be legitimately afraid of. But Psalm 27 is in the Bible. 
It, like so many other places in the Bible, are very realistic about the threats of the world, but David and countless other biblical authors and characters are convinced that while all of those threats out there are real, the presence of God is stronger. God is wise and good, and while there is much to be afraid of and about, we can trust in our God. So we're going to think through Psalm 27 tonight, not necessarily verse by verse, but more thematically, uh, comparing the threats of the world, the very real threats of the world, with the security of God. So first of all, the threats of the world. Let me read uh, just verse 1 again. Uh, First, kind of focusing our attention out there, where David says, "'The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear?' The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, of course, the subject of all or the object of all of that that David is thinking about is God. But if God is David's light, then this assumes that the world out there is actually quite dark. And what makes darkness so scary? What, what does make darkness so uh, dangerous? Well, darkness is disorienting. You don't know what you don't know. Like, if you are in complete darkness and you are walking out with your your hands in front of you, you kind of do the little foot shuffle thing, because even though you've got at least this much out there, you're still afraid of, like, getting ahead of your hands. You don't know what you don't know. Your mind and your imagination can sometimes make innocuous things bad and then bad things even worse. I remember as an elementary kid, uh, sometimes my, my neighbor a couple doors down would hire me uh, to do some house sitting for them, and usually around Christmas time, I think they had family out of town or something, so it was always dark and cold by like five o'clock, and I'd turn off all the lights in the house and then sprint out of the house and sprint through the several yards back uh, to my house. Uh, my family was talking about this last night, and Marcy said that when she was a kid, she would uh, turn off the light and then sprint to her bed uh, just because of what might be under the bed. Uh, It was then that we found out that one of our four boys actually sneaks into his brother's room and hides under the bed, and then when the other brothers have turned off the lights, he says, hello, Uh, and that is quite creepy. Uh, I won't out which one of those sons it is, but... For David, it's not just his imagination that what might be out there that's scary, things that aren't real. No, we know, we don't know the historical context of why David is writing this particular psalm in Psalm 27, but he has been in many situations in his life where the threats he is experiencing aren't just imagined, but they are actual and serious. Verse 2, he says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. He is considering and maybe even remembering times when he has been completely surrounded by very real threats, by armies who he considers they might as well just be mindless animals, violent, wild animals. They want to eat up his flesh. Maybe not literally, but as hungry animals, they only care about his destruction, about his death. Their armies surround him like like the orc armies marching out from Mordor, just out for destruction, to suck up and destroy all that is good and light. Death, violence, destruction. 
He is experiencing, verse 5, he says he's experiencing days of trouble. Verse 6, enemies all around him. In verse 12, he prays that God would not give him up to the will of his adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, David says. They breathe out violence, false accusation against him, violence coming at him. David doesn't live in some spiritual dream world that if you believe in God, that just God exists, or even you trust in God, that suddenly all of your problems will now magically go away, that you'll never experience hardship, that you will never encounter difficulty or accusation or threat or violence or weakness or sickness. This idea that if you just believe in God and have enough faith and you'll live in this happy, carefree life of, of adventure, devoid of discomfort, this is like a brand new American idea that we have unfortunately now exported to the rest of the world. But even if we think, because you know, we're so theologically serious in our church and things, we think that we reject that kind of prosperity gospel of healthy, wealthy lives, I think we practically still kind of believe it. That we should be, because of our obedience to the Lord, because of our faithfulness, over many decades of coming to church and doing all that the church has asked for us, serving in children's ministries and whatever else, that we should be free from cancer diagnoses. We should be free from losing our job. We should be free from relational stress or damage. Like, what did we ever do to deserve this? I've recently run across some analysis of some sociology, sociology studies surrounding end of life. And these studies found that American Christians who have terminal illnesses are about three times more likely than agnostics or atheists to ask for extreme measures. Extreme measures that, like, like treatments that will likely have very, very severe side effects, possibly isolating them from the rest of their family for the last few days or weeks or months of their life. Measures that one physician describes as lottery tickets chance just to extend their life by just a couple days or weeks, often under immense suffering. And in follow-up interviews, these folks will say, these Christians will say that they just want to give God the chance to do a miracle. And that sounds good and right. Their faith in Him sounds very strong. But one theologian who thinks and writes a lot about end-of-life issues says that likely this indicates that their hope and faith is merely in life extension. It's a fear of death that I have if I'm asking for these unbelievably difficult and extreme measures to just keep me alive for a few more weeks or months, then I have misinterpreted God's promises. I have misinterpreted that He has promised me a happy, healthy life in the here and now, in this life, in this age, not in the one to come. Ignoring the reality that death is an actual inevitability for every single one of us. No matter how faithful to the Lord we are. Because guys, the, the reality out there is actually quite dark. Quite dark. Afghanistan has quickly fallen back into the hands of the Taliban. A pastor in the Middle East recently wrote about his friends in Afghanistan, and he says that every Afghan Christian that I've talked to wants to live and every Afghan Christian I've talked to is prepared to die. That is a very startling and stark reality. I don't think we as American Christians have even a category for that kind of thing. 
Life for our brothers and sisters in places like Nigeria or Burkina Faso, while not as prominent in the news, is just as dangerous. At least four and a half million people in the past year and a half have died of COVID. Some of you may think that that's an over-exaggerated number because COVID is blamed for lots of kinds of deaths when many other causes could or should be considered or blamed, but this number is almost assuredly under-reported as many third world countries have not been able to keep track of their deaths. The amount of death, I mean, just in a, in a normal year, I don't know, 2014 or something, the amount of death and suffering that the world encounters and experiences in any year is almost too unimaginable to even consider. But then when we stack up all of the additional suffering in worldwide violence and worldwide pandemic, it's just too much to think through. But maybe all that's just hypothetical or impersonal. Afghanistan is so far away. You don't know anybody who lives there. I don't. Maybe you aren't, uh, maybe you don't know anyone personally who has died or suffered from COVID. Maybe you aren't uh, like Marcy and I who now have very, three very close friends who are outside of this church, but uh, their marriages are crumbling. Uh, two others whose marriages are just holding on by a thread. We're a really young church. If you look around, uh, we're generally a pretty young church, and we have mostly avoided the reality of death in our church over the past five years. Mostly because we're so young, we happen to live in 2021 where medical care is so advanced and amazing. But guys, the last two or three weeks in the life of our church have been really hard. Um, several of our brothers and sisters, like, seemingly going through what is unbearably hard. Premature births, NICU stays, pediatric tumors and surgeries, pediatric seizures and very imminent danger of brain injuries, the tragic deaths of one of your brothers, This last year and this last week have been a very real confrontation to many of us. Again, again, this isn't new, but a very real confrontation to all of us that we are all going to die. Death is an inevitability for all of us. Suffering, what Clint said at the beginning of this sermon or the service is absolutely true. If you are not going through this suffering, give it, give it some time. We as Americans live in a day where we can pretend like it's not coming, but it will. That none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed a healthy 85 years. The human life is so fragile, so vulnerable, just like a puff of vapor on a cold morning, here, gone, and forgotten. And there are very real threats all around. But here's the thing. So far, this sermon has been a real downer. Uh, but this sermon won't end that way, because Psalm 27 does not end that way. While the threats of the world are very serious, the security of God is better, is stronger, is actually one of not hopelessness, but of immense comforting hope. So let's turn our attention from out there from the circumstances out there to up here, to the one who is actually sure and steady, despite our very unsteady circumstances surrounding us, the security of God. So despite all of the darkness out there, 
God is David's light. Despite insecurity, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Verse three, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Verse five, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me upon a high rock. Now, at first glance, when you read a psalm like this, when you read Psalm 27, this psalm actually does seem to indicate that if you have this kind of faith, that you will have a happy, healthy, safe, victorious life over all kinds of opposition or suffering. God will keep us and protect us. But one of the very first questions that we should always ask ourselves when we read any bit of the Bible Whenever we're reading, we should ask ourselves, when are we reading? That is, what's the context of what I am reading here? Where in the story of God's redemption of his people and his redemption of the cosmos are we talking about? Are we thinking about? Are we reading about? And so there's some really important context here. First, that God or David is God's anointed king. Again, we don't know when this was written, but we, can, we cannot read Psalm 27 without remembering and considering the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. I meant to put this up here, and I forgot. Uh, if you just want to maybe put your finger in Psalm uh, 27 and just go a little bit to your left and find 2 Samuel 7, this is often called the Davidic covenant or the covenant that God made with David. And I'm just going to read a few verses in 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 8. And all of this is important. And all of this actually helps us interpret and uh, understand Psalm 27. So stick with me here. Starting in verse 8, God sends the prophet Nathan, and God tells Nathan this, verse 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So God has made a not just a, many specific promises to this guy, David, reaffirming promises made to Abraham and Moses of of a land, of a place to dwell with God, and then permanent promises given to David that his son Solomon would actually build a temple, a fixed place of God's presence with his people, rather than this mobile tabernacle that was always moving about. And so, when David says in verse 9 of Psalm 27, when he says, Turn not your servant away in anger. Your servant is like covenantal language. This is what Nathan called David, your servant. And then he says, 
Turn not your servant away in anger, O you have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Forsake is very often in the Old Testament covenantal language. Don't forsake, don't renege on your word, O God. Keep your covenant. And when he even says in verse 10, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. We don't have any evidence that David's father, Jesse, or his mother actually did renege on their family bonds to David. So maybe David is both thinking forward that God would be as a father to his royal line, as he said in 2 Samuel 7, but he's probably even going back to Psalm 2. Remember that? Way back March of last year when we together thought about Psalm 2, where God told David, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So just like Jesus would later talk about family ties with mother and father and sister and brother, the kind of love and belonging and inheritance and acceptance that David has, has experienced from God as father makes the love and inheritance of his own earthly father and mother nice, but dare I say like forgettable in comparison. But let's get to the real center of the issue. Everything that David is talking about with confidence in Psalm 27, about the enemies and about God as David's stronghold in salvation, is really all in verse 4, where David says in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now again, David says the word temple here, but he's really talking about the tabernacle. His son Solomon will build the temple. But this place, this tabernacle, this coming temple, this is the place where God will dwell with his people. It is the place of his worship. It is the place of his glory. It is the place where people come to have their sins forgiven. It is the place of nearness to God. And so, military victory and deliverance must happen. In Psalm 27, remember, when are we reading? Military deliverance must happen for all of that to continue. For sacrifices, for nearness to God. David is confident that God will deliver him, David, the king, because if David falls, then the tabernacle falls. God's presence with his people falls. And so, even in verse 13, where David says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This isn't a verse about heaven or the resurrection or something. Just that he is going to continue to experience life. He is going to experience God's goodness to him in the place where people are living. In the, the land of the living, where people are alive. In this life, in this age, despite surrounding and threatening armies, God will deliver David to safety. Even likewise in verse 6, my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord with very real threats and danger all around him. David will continue to make sacrifices in the tent, in the tabernacle. He will choose to worship the Lord in faith. So when are we reading? Well, we don't have a temple. We don't have a tabernacle. The temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC, and then after it was rebuilt, it was destroyed again by the Romans in the year 70 AD. So is it true then that God has abandoned his promises? He is no longer near to his people? He has left his people and he doesn't dwell with them any longer? Couldn't be any further from the truth. Reality is far greater than 
anything that David could have ever imagined or hoped for. In Matthew 1, Matthew goes to great lengths to present Jesus as the son of David, the one to whom 2 Samuel 7 was pointing toward. In John 1, John goes to great lengths to present Jesus as the actual tabernacle. That is that Jesus is the place that God has come to dwell with his people. He is the place of his worship. He is the place of his glory. Jesus is the place where people come to have their sins forgiven. He is the place of nearness to God. These psalms, then, are the very prayer book of Jesus. They, are, they prepare us and then are fulfilled by David's greater son. So when David says in verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. When we read a verse like that, our theological imaginations should just jump straight to a place like Hebrews 5.7. Where in Hebrews 5.7 we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. I think Psalm 27 is totally in the author's mind there in Hebrews 5. To him who was actually able to save him from death, and he was heard, Jesus' cries. And then a couple of verses later in Hebrews 5, then becoming the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him, who would obey him as their royal priest, their high king. And then, here's where this stuff gets real good. Not just one royal king who can pray these things confidently, but then through the work of our older brother Jesus, who brings his sonship not just to himself, but then just distributes it freely and widely and graciously to his brothers, his adopted little brothers and sisters, his inheritance given now to us who come to him by faith, then we can also confidently lay claim to his heavenly inheritance as sons and daughters as we are united to him. The prayers of David become the prayers of Jesus, and if we are united to Jesus, then they become our prayers as well. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. But here's the thing. While the land and temple promises the presence of God depended for David on military victory, victory over threat and death, the presence of God now for his people on this side of the cross depends on coming through threat and death. Because God has not promised you a carefree life. He's not promised you a stress-free, cancer-free, COVID-free, sadness-free, grief-free life. In fact, everything that Clint read in our call to worship from 1 Peter 1 says that actually those things will come. But those things will actually get us to the place of the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Because while he has not promised you a carefree life, he has promised you himself. I will neither leave you nor forsake you, the Lord Jesus said just before he ascended to heaven to claim his inheritance on the throne, to bring us near to the Father. I will neither leave you nor forsake you as you get sick. I will neither leave you for, or forsake you as you lose your job. As you long for marriage, as you lose your marriage, 
as you lose your parents, as you lose your children, as you perhaps, even in some parts of the world, lose your head, as you lose your life, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. Which is exactly the kind of thing that David needed to hear, needed to believe as well. Again, in verse 4, he says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. Now, now hold up. David is saying, if we can just like write that little sentence with the little colon that comes after it. He is saying, there is one thing in the entire universe that I want most. More wishes. That's not what he says. But how would you answer that question? One thing that I have asked of the Lord, if our hearts honestly and freely answer that question, not how you know you should answer that question, but how your heart actually would answer that question, how would we fill in the blank? That is the hypothetical reality that God has actually just become a genie. And he will give you the one thing that you want most. He will give you the one thing that you wish. What would it be? Dream job? Dream house? Dream spouse? Dream vacation? The breakthrough medical advancement? The return of the loved one that you've lost? While all of those things might bring happiness even like pretty intense and kind of satisfying happiness. All of those things are just but temporary. They might bring immense happiness for a while, but then what? I've been told of a TV show that ran for about four years that ended last year called The Good Place. Okay, several of you know that Marcy and I have actually been watching this show. Uh, I've not just been told of it. It's absolutely terrible theologically. Like, it's awful theology. Uh, But it's a really interesting exploration of morality, of ethics, what the world longs for and hopes for, both in the present and in a potential afterlife. I'm not sure I'd recommend it, so don't take this as an endorsement. But without giving too many spoilers, the last few episodes of that entire series were really, really depressing. Like, really depressing. I don't think the, and actually, I don't think the writers of the show actually meant it to be depressing. I think the writers thought that this was like a gift of joy and contentment that they were giving to an unbelieving world, but really depressing. Like, we don't know how long the characters in The Good Place had been living. Presumably many hundreds of thousands of years, maybe a few million years that these people were living into the afterlife. But they had become so bored, so bored, Existence had uh, lost its meaning. That is, if all that eternity is that we have to hope for is just like experiences. I mean, one of the last couple of episodes, like how many times can you do all that there is to do? Like Paris is only cool the first few million times. And then after that, like Paris is just kind of a thing. You get bored by it. If all eternal life is meant for and is, has to offer is experiences or even people, even people with whom we have incredibly deep relationships, well, even those, even our relationships will reach a terminus, will reach an end. 
an end of all that there is to kind of know and encounter and experience about another person? And then what's left? Not much. Kind of better to just maybe not exist than to exist in that reality. Because created things cannot fulfill or satisfy us eternally. But an eternal creator can. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. An eternal God with, that is to say, if an eternal God is actually a thing, a person, then that means that we can encounter, learn, experience him eternally with exponentially increasing joy. That doesn't get old. But David's not saying that he'd be satisfied by like locking himself into the tabernacle and then just like staring at a bright light for a few trillion years. That's not what he's saying. But that if his entire life, if all of his encounters and his, his, his experiences are both in the Lord and with the presence of the Lord, then there is actual eternal joy, exponentially increasing eternal joy. Which reminds me so much of that C.S. Lewis quote where he said, if I find myself, if I find in myself desires which nothing in the world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I kind of wish he had said something like age or something instead of world. The Bible, I think, probably doesn't actually teach that God is going to rescue us out of this world only to then just have us stare at a bright light for eternity but that God's glory, his full and final presence will actually descend on this earth, his kingdom making, uh, being made known on this earth as it is in heaven to restore and redeem. But the sentiment is certainly there in Lewis's quote that if I find in myself desires which nothing in this age can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another age where all my desires are finally culminated and satisfied eternally. I was made to live and walk with an eternal God. And yet sin, suffering, opposition, threats, these distract me from those things. But this eternal God has invaded this age, this world of opposition, this world of short-circuited worship, this world of violence and threats and sin and sickness and death. And sometimes God does intervene. He intervenes directly, miraculously healing and preserving his people. Perhaps oftentimes, though, he doesn't. In fact, all the time in our lives, for all of us, he will not. That, that is to say, all of us will die unless the Lord returns. He will not miraculously keep us living forever. It's just reality. But because Jesus has suffered and died, he has turned the page on reality. He's a new Adam, ushering resurrection hope on that first Easter Sunday. That resurrection Sunday that we now celebrate and remember every Sunday. The Sunday, the, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, the day of our life. That now we are able to live in and through this world of sickness and death by his presence with confidence, with hope, with faith. And so the question is, for us as we read a psalm like this, is do we long for God's presence in this way? Are you satisfied with God's presence in this way? And I totally get it if the answer to that is 
No, I understand, I empathize. I personally am not either. In my weak desires, in my low perspective, I think and I seek after these kinds of things that I may, one thing that I may ask of the Lord that I would just have this instead of him. And so let's behold him together. Let us wait upon the Lord together. I mean, even just rationally, let's bring out the scales and just weigh the balance of the world versus God. The uncertainty of the world and the surety of God. Even just from this psalm, here's what the world will offer you. Darkness, confusion, fear, anxiety. The powers, the politics, the systems, the threats of this world will also offer and bring you opposition, distraction, and death, accusation, and foolishness. Whereas dwelling in the house of the Lord, living all of your life in his presence, in and with him, this brings light and confidence. It brings strength and assurance. God's presence brings nearness and responsiveness, not silence from him. The work of Christ on your behalf brings belonging and inheritance. A life walked with God brings wisdom and life. And so it's one thing to agree with those things intellectually. It's another thing to believe it, to live it. So next week, uh, Kyle is going to be starting our first week of our next core class, starting at 2.30. And he's going to be thinking through and leading us through the whole storyline of the Bible. This is going to be like a mini seminary class that you get for free. So you don't want to stay home. Um, But uh, what we've heard from several of you is that while the teaching of Kyle has been really, really great, actually what's been most valuable is just sitting around a round table with your Bible open with other members of our church. Just thinking and reading and reflecting and applying God's word to our lives. So sign up. Sign up tonight when you get home. And then we've got several months together to think through what may be the most practical book in the Bible. You'll be thinking, all right, I want to behold God's glory, but I don't know how. Well, next week in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is not just to do a bunch of things, but to behold God. To give him our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind. And then uh, practical life application comes from that. So that a few months from now, we might say and mean that we might believe and be comforted by this biblical truth, that one thing I have asked of the Lord that I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Because guys, this age, this reality is so full of sadness and darkness. But perhaps with Psalm 27.1 in his mind, Jesus would say this to you, that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have me, the light of the of life. Let's pray that this would be true for us. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have been our very present help in times of trouble, that you have come to us to offer us perhaps not deliverance from our suffering, but that you have come to offer us yourself in the midst of suffering. And so we are so thankful for so many things in the life of our church. We are so thankful that uh, Bonnie Lair may be being discharged from the NICU tonight. We're so thankful that you have kept her and preserved her and kept uh, Eric and Shannon's faith in you so strong. We are so thankful for your grace and your kindness for Camden Penninger. God, that his tumor is benign and that he is home. 
and that you have kept his mother and father, Matt and Katie, close to yourself. God, we pray for crew Mayberry, who perhaps may be um, entering an MRI, perhaps right now as we speak, to understand uh, the depth of the damage in his brain. God, we pray that you would preserve him. We pray that you would preserve the faith and the love and the joy that Craig and Hannah have in you. Pray that you would um, model this well for their other kids. God, we pray for our brother Cedric, who is mourning new news of grief and of loss. Pray that you would bind him up, that you would comfort the brokenhearted, that you would bring light where there is darkness. God, we are so thankful for even just a couple of hours ago, the birth of Caleb Beatty. We give praise to you, Father. We praise you for your sovereignty, your wisdom, your care for every single precious life that is represented uh, in the life of this church. Help us to love you more. Help us to love one another more. Help us, we pray to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And we pray these things for your glory and for our own joy in this age and in the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.